Amen, amen. It's good to be here this morning. Let's praise the Lord. <clears throat> you guys can grab a seat. And, uh, you know, before I jump into the message, I just got a few uh, kind of exciting announcements that I wanted to share uh, with our church family this morning. First, um, as you guys know, uh, one of the great uh, blessings within the context of our church is uh, just the variety of people that lead and carry so much of the ministry weight in our church, whether it's ministry leaders or or staff, or, or, or deacons, or elders, and uh, from time to time when we are looking to expand the leadership team, particularly at the elder and deacon level, we have written into the rhythm of how we do that is to present people before the church for evaluation. And what do we mean by that? Like, do you guys give them like an A, B, C, D, you know, F? Um, that's, that's not what we do. What it is, is it's an opportunity for us to go, hey, we want, the, in, this, in, in the case this morning, an elder, a potential elder we're going to put in front of our church. We're doing that because we, we believe God's Word says that a men that are leading the church in that way has elders over uh, direction and, and, and discipleship and doctrine need to be men that are above reproach. So they volunteer to go, hey, if there's anything that's not right before the Lord, I want to work through that, and we want to know that. And so uh, this morning, after a, a process of evaluation, I'm excited to put uh, Scott Carpenter in front of our church as one of the uh, next elders uh, to join our team. Um, that's a picture right there of Scott and his wife Sue and their son Ben, who's 16 years old. They have two older daughters in their 20s, and uh, uh, Scott and Sue have been such a blessing to our church, and uh, um, Scott is um, a man who we see so much giftedness and character and love for Jesus, um, and we're uh, wanting to put him in front of the church. So could you guys please just be praying for, for Scott as he moves towards that, and there's already been numerous conversations and evaluation and processing and and this is sort of the last step in that. And if you have anything that you uh, feel would not qualify Scott in any way uh, to be one of our elders, please come talk to us or talk to Scott directly. Um, that's part of the process, and we want to be faithful to God and to his word in that. So that's an exciting uh, thing that we believe God is leading us to. A second is um, something that kind of launches today. We're going to give more specifics next week, but it's something we're titling the Season of Incarnation. If you've been around our church over the past few years, uh, we're asking the question around the sort of like Thanksgiving, Christmas holiday, how can, what are we going to do in that season? And some churches do a bunch of events and invite people to them. The posture in our church, particularly in the last few years, has been, man, what can we do in the community? Like, what can we do outside of the walls of the church? We have this great opportunity to gather weekly. What if, what if we thought about this sort of like holiday season differently? And so we said this year, we, last year we, we highlighted, if you remember, we highlighted some of our, 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 our like community partners that are doing like compassion ministry and we highlighted them, we prayed for them, we gave um, above and beyond our tithes and offerings to those organizations. And uh, this year, we said, what would it look like if we challenged our church to be like boots on the ground? Like actually thinking, we celebrate in the holidays the reality that Jesus, the incarnate one, came from heaven to earth, embodied in human form, and, and, and did ministry. What if in this season, we challenge our church to do the same? And so you can see at the top of that, sort of three phrases, intentional on mission, motivated by love, purposeful in action. 
And so next week, we're going to give you some specific ideas of what that could look like. It could be with one of our partners um, in some ministry opportunities. We've heard from them and are going to present those to you. You could go to mychristchurch.org slash season of incarnation and see some of the ideas that we've started to pull together. And what we're challenging you to do is maybe it's just right in your own family. I was talking to a husband, wife, and their younger boy this morning, and I said, you guys would be a perfect example of a family that could go out and do one of these opportunities. We're challenging you to do at least one, or not, if not more. And they could be things with our partners that we're going to put, but they could also be ideas that you come up with. One of the ideas our staff, uh, one of our staff members had was like, I, I think I'm just going like, to get my family together. We're going to bake cookies and we're going to take it to all of our neighbors and just say, hey, we just want to show you the love of Christ around this holiday season. And so we, we don't care what it is. We just want you to be thinking and praying, how can I incarnate the reality of Christ in this season of incarnation? And so like I said, more details. We want to make this as easy as possible for you and we're going to find some fun ways hopefully to share some of the things that are happening. But can you imagine just in this room, not to mention all the people we had gathered in our first service, what sort of impact we could have. Like just think about that. And then, and then just think like God's given me some time and something to give into that. And so we want to challenge you with that, and we're excited about that. So those two things, both a new elder and a season of incarnation, um, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. Let me pray for us before we jump in. God, we turn our attention. We thank you for the ministry that's happening in our church. We thank you for the leadership of our church. But now, God, we come back to the thing that's got us to this place, and it's the truth of your Word and the presence of the Spirit. And I'm asking, God, that your Spirit would move and teach us and prepare us to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, to understand and get a picture of what it looks like to draw near to Christ in crisis. And so we pray that you lead us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you're new this morning, we've been in a series called Take Aim. We talked about kind of pulling back and, and, and taking aim on discipleship. The first four messages in this series taught us the foundation of drawing near. We started talking about how at some level, to draw near to Christ, you have to have faith in Christ. Second, we talked about the sacrifice of Christ allows me to draw near. Then we talked about once I draw near, now it is prayer, talking to God uh, in alignment with truth. Then Chris preached about how when we draw near, we get this picture of Jesus Christ and he transforms our lives and we get to the person of Christ. And then last week, we started kind of this, uh, last week, this week, and the week after, um, we're into a place where we're looking at different places in scriptures, in the scriptures where people actually draw near to Christ. Last week, we saw a Mary and Martha as Jeremy preached that passage this week, I'm going to be talking about how do we draw near to Christ in crisis. Then Jeremy's got a message next week for us. Um, I'm going to be on our student retreat, so excited for that. I'm going to encourage you guys how to pray for that before the end of our service. And then the last week, we're just going to have a review together. We're going to be like, what have we learned and, and what does this mean for how we walk forward? And so... Um, I'm excited for that and uh, just excited for what uh, God is going to do in and through this. So for today, for today, l l let, me, let me start with this question for you. I don't know what you came in here feeling or burdened with. 
But here's the question. Where do you turn when you're facing a crisis? Where do you turn? Where do you turn when you're facing a crisis? Here's the common places we turn. And you guys are going to completely uh, understand this because if you think about the times you've gone through or the time you are right now going through a crisis, often we respond quickly in our own strength, right? Like crisis comes, we're like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What can I do? How, how can I take care of this? How can I uh, kind of step up or rise up or, 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 or sort of bulk up into this situation so that I can navigate through it? Some of us immediately pick up the phone, right? And we, and we have that one person that you, you know in a crisis, that's the person I call. Maybe a spouse, it may be a really good friend. Some of you immediately start to look for a trusted resource. You're like, I'm going to I'm going to Google my way out of this one, which normally means you spend a lot of time, wasted often. Some of you try to deny it. You're just like, oh, it's not really that bad. Not really that bad. Or you realize how bad it is and you just want to hide from it. Just give me as far away from it as possible. And some of you, unfortunately, move to medicating your way through it and you have some patterns in your life that you know are incredibly unhealthy they provide some sense of temporary satisfaction, but they really don't solve or help you with the crisis. So the question on, in, in, in light of your response is, is your response informed by the culture of the world or by the culture of the kingdom of God? And into that, get your Bibles open, if they're not already, to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Headed to the Old Testament. Um, we, we have not preached a lot of messages from Second Chronicles, okay? There's a lot of those uh, genealogies in Chronicles that sometimes people are like, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And you get to Chronicles and you're like, what in the heck is happening? <laughs> Anybody been there? I've been there. I feel you. Um, and so into this, into, this chat, into this book of Second Chronicles, let me give a little introduction about this because I want you to understand. It's the second book of Chronicles. Chronicles is a historical account of God's people in Israel and Judah. So if you're like, oh, great history, you know, like that's your response anytime you hear the word history. Um, I, I promise you this has uh, more for your life than maybe some history classes that you've had in your uh, time in school. While I love history, it's not all equal in its impact it can have in our life. And so I uh, promise you today you're going to see something that can help you. Second Chronicles chapter 20 um, Chronicles spans from really a documentation of all the way from Adam to God's people returning from exile in Persia in 538 B.C. So this book is old, okay? Uh, you got, there's nobody older than this book, I promise you in here. Uh, chapter 20 is in the middle of the account of the kings of Judah. And this chapter is the last chapter focusing on the reign of Jehoshaphat. Most of the kings... If you've read through the Kings or Chronicles, you know that it's like every king that emerges that God raises up is either like good or evil, right? You're like, come on, can someone figure this out, please? And you look at the account of our own country or just history, and you'll be like, no, we're still struggling with that. It's this thing called the fall. Thank you again, Adam and Eve. And, um, and so in the midst of this, Oftentimes, what you have is kings were either good, aligned with God and his truth, or evil, completely going away. But Jehoshaphat is one of the few that actually seems to waver, which immediately I can connect with. I don't know about you. Sometimes my heart wavers. 
And in the midst of his ups and downs, this part of the historical account of his life is a good example of his heart for God and provides encouragement. So first, I want you to see the crisis in chapter 20, verse 1. Look at it. After this, so, so Jehoshaphat was, was like kind of trying to reform God's people to be focused on God. Chapter 20, verse 1, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Look at this map so you can see exactly what's happening here, because this is a historical account, which means there should be some evidence of this geographically. So there you've got the nation of Judah, you've got Jerusalem in the the green, that little top little dot. On the right or the east side, you've got these three countries, and they had basically decided to come against to try to take out this nation of God at this point. And so you can see the path they traveled to pick up all their friends, to gather together their armies, and come to go to battle. Now, how does Jehoshaphat respond? Follow with me, verses 3 through 12. I'm not going to read every verse in here. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'm going to give you the sense of what's happening. Chapter 20, verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid... And set his face to seek the Lord, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who you would not Let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then what happens following this is this... He gathers all the people together because they're fasting and praying and they're believing upon God and they're trusting Him and they're seeking God together. And, and And then Jehoshaphat, in response to all this, begins to worship. And he begins to rally the people together. And to call them to not be afraid and, and that they're going to go down into the uh, ascent of ziz, ziz and then there's the, a valley. And look at this next picture and you'll see they're like going to move down from Jerusalem. The battle has, has, has sort of set its place to happen. The battle's going to happen in the wilderness of Tekoa. So God's people get right to the end of that purple line and the army is up where that green line extends up. And they are face to face with one another. And the, and the people gather in the wilderness and they just begin to worship. And in response to their worship and their faith and their trust in God, it says that the Lord sends an ambush completely in a spiritual way. And all the armies ended up turning on one another and they destroyed one another. Complete and total victory by the Lord. How awesome is our God? Just like sitting there worshiping, 
and like, done. And the summary is amazing in verse 30. Look at it. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. When God gets victory, there's quiet. For his God gave him rest all around. Come on, that, that's the God we serve. So the big overarching move from this text that I want you to write down in your notes is we're going to draw from this, this historical account. It's an encouragement to every disciple. Respond to crisis with an urgency to draw near to God. Respond to crisis with an urgency to draw near to God. When we understand If we believe God is who He says He is, if we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, if we believe that the Spirit of God is who the Scriptures testify the Spirit of God is, when in crisis, the follower of God should move with urgency to draw near to God. So, when I talk about crisis in this, respond to crisis, I'm talking about two types of crisis or or categories. First is a crisis because of threat. Threat is is something's coming against me. It could be an outside danger. It could be a difficult circumstance, a struggle with sin, persecution from people, a medical diagnosis, or it could be a crisis of opportunity. I think about um, every Sunday service when we gather together and we're trying to uh, speak the truth of Christ into a world of darkness, uh, uh, planting a church or meeting together to study God's Word together or community group gathering together or sharing Christ with people or loving someone in need, all of those are crisis because of opportunity that oftentimes there's something happening in the spiritual realm that we're battling against. And so from what we learn from Jehoshaphat, I want to talk today about three directions to move in any crisis. Three directions to move in any crisis. The first one is this. Run directly from fear to seek the Lord. Just look with me again in verse 3. Remember, Jehoshaphat's the king. He's the king. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I love the authenticity of the Bible. He was the king. I feel like in most uh, interpretations of this reality or even in the kingdoms of this world, kings are ones who have their chest puffed out and they're like, come and get it. Come and get it. And they have this posture to them that is like, we're going we're gonna to take care of business because I'm the leader. I think corporations are led by that, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the posture of many churches are led like that, and I've seen that. But when Jehoshaphat faces the crisis, he doesn't feel some need to posture or act like he was fearless or too tough to be scared. He didn't power up or puff up his chest. It says here, he was afraid. I need that truth. 
Because behind the way places that we posture and pose, we know that there's places in our hearts where as we face crisis that we are afraid. And the Bible showcases to us that it's okay to feel the emotion of being afraid or anxious or apprehensive. Like Jehoshaphat, um, Jacob and Moses and Samuel and David and Peter and many others all expressed being afraid in certain circumstances. And this is really encouraging to me into our sort of independent culture of America where we love to act like we've got all the power and we uh, have this sort of almost bravado culture, particularly in in some areas of of our nation and, and perspectives, and we love to posture like we're not afraid. Yeah, you want to come against us? Come and get it. I'm like, um, not consistent with what we see kings doing. By acting, see, here's, here's the problem. By acting that you're not afraid, by acting like you can handle it, by acting like you have no fear, you miss the emotion watch this, that is supposed to drive you to draw near to God. When we we act like we got it all together, we, we try to keep it all together. A better option is to do what Jehoshaphat did, to confess your fear and set your face to seek the Lord, to move directly. It's okay. The the most important move for 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 a disciple is not to try to eliminate fear in your own power. That'd be foolish. I don't reason my way to that. I, I literally want to move from a place where I'm, I'm, I'm encountering fear right to draw near to the Lord. It says he set his face. See, over time, one of the, one of the great places of maturity that I see in people's lives uh, kind of looks like this. People face fear here, and they want to get over here. God wants to get them to the place where they draw near to God. So here is drawing near to God where the person meets with God and finds peace in God. And over here is the person when they find fear. See, see if you resonate with this. Sometimes in my life, and I'm certain in yours, you've experienced fear, and then you go on this like really long journey which normally involves, I'll take care of it. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I'll try to do this. That didn't work. I'm going to try to talk to this person. That didn't work. And you go on this journey from here to there that's just like all over the place. When your moves to try to find how to navigate through fear, when those move into places of sin, you start to face even more consequences. And now, not only are you facing the reality of what you're afraid of, but now you face all these consequences as you navigate through this. Anybody been there with me? Maturity around drawing near to Christ means that I want to try to make that line as direct as possible. So if I learn from that, the next time I walk through something, I'm like kind of like this. And I might still make some wrong moves, but oftentimes the grace of God protects me from it moving to a place of sin. And now I'm kind of like this. And I got there a whole lot faster than I did the first time, right? I hope you've had that moment in your life. And then over time, I see saints, and I want my life to look like this, where they're like, okay, 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 done playing around. Like, run directly from fear to seek the Lord, and it's like fear experience, and they're like, 
I'm getting to God as quick as possible. And that's what you see from Jehoshaphat. That's what it means to set your face. It's, it's, I'm going right to the Word of God. I'm going right to crying out uh, to God. I, I, I'm, I'm going right to a place where my identity gets cemented in who I am in Christ. I'm going right to an eternal perspective. Because I don't want to waste any more time meandering around trying to do it in my own power. Set your face to seek the Lord, run directly from fear to seeking the Lord. But then notice Jehoshaphat doesn't just deal with it individually. He calls people to respond corporately, and that's our second point this morning. Rally with other believers to seek the Lord. So now, you see that after he seeks the Lord, it doesn't just stop there. I don't know about your Bible, but it's to seek the Lord, comma, not period, not exclamation point, comma, and, he did something else, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Proclaimed a fast. King Jehoshaphat utilized his influence as king to go, man, there's a lot of people that are facing this threat and this crisis, and so what we're going to do is we're going to gather together and we are going to worship and we are going to pray and we are going to fast so that we have more time to seek God. So, so this call to fast, what did that mean for the people? Some of us, when we think of fasting, we just think about a period of time when we don't eat. And, and so, but biblical fasting is way more than that. And, and I don't know where I got this quote, this, where this quote came from. It came from a resource that Colin has used in our church. And here's a definition that was helpful for me. Fasting is an intentional decision to abstain from the nourishment of this world in order to feast on the nourishment of God alone. You fast because you want more of God. And the people were fasting because they were like, there's a crisis and I don't just want to get to God myself, but I literally want the people of God to get to God as directly as possible. So they rally with other believers and they're like, we're going to fast and pray. And so we're not going to eat for a period of time. You see the heart of fasting in verse 12. Look at it with me, the last sentence. This sentence has embedded itself in my heart in ways it had not before in preparation for this message. Look what they say. They don't say I. It doesn't say he. It's a declaration of God's people, that last sentence. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Church, listen, there's not a better place to be in a crisis than declaring not just I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, but to have now rallied people around you as you're walking through a crisis and collectively being surrounded by people all saying the same thing. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I think about that into some of the crisis that is going on in our church and the people and the lives of our church that I see some of that every week and I know even the prayer requests that are shared don't even represent all the realities of heartbreak and difficulty and trials and ups and downs. And But I, I'm so thankful for what I see when I see believers rallying together in the midst of crisis. 
Doesn't that warm your heart? And doesn't that give you a sense of like, that's what we're here for. Not just to individually receive a message and gather together on Sundays, but literally to be the people of God who in the midst of crisis are rallying together and praying for one another and fasting and praying into both a crisis of threat and a crisis of opportunity. And I see in our church right now. Let me give you an example of a crisis of threat. Up on the screen, this is a a picture of Scott Brandenburg and his uh, wife, Valerie. Um, Scott was recently diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma, which is an aggressive form of brain cancer. It's a heartbreaking prognosis for he and his wife and for their children, all who are part of our church. And um, he's right now undergoing aggressive treatment, but um, he can't work or drive right now. Valerie's sort of stepping up in to support Scott. And um, it's heartbreaking, honestly. And, but, but you, you want to know, you know what's not heartbreaking? Watching this family, the second that that became the reality of their future, just move directly from an, I, I, I can't even understand the reality of that and the fear and just moving directly to God. And watching them not try to handle it on their own, but rally other people around, calling the church to pray and support them. Their community group has been exemplary. I talked to Scott this, this week, and he was just like, we just feel so supported and cared for. He goes, I'm literally telling our community group leader, like, we're good, we're good, we're good. But, but the, God's people aren't going to stop, are they? Even when the person walking through a crisis is good, we're going to continue to pray and fast. We're going to be like, how can, how can we help? How can we serve? How can we love? How can we walk alongside? How can we pray and fast for healing? How can we walk alongside them in the midst of all of the sort of uncertainty that we don't know is going to play out from here to there? But the beautiful reality for this couple's life, what they've modeled to our church and to their own family, is that they're going to move directly to God and they're going to rally other believers. That's a beautiful picture of what we should all be doing as we walk into crisis. Then there's a crisis of opportunity. Uh, this coming weekend, um, the, the student ministry is going to go on a retreat, and already um, Colin's been rallying leaders and people to pray for that retreat where students are getting away to kind of ask God to revive their heart. Some might come to Christ for the very first time, Amen. And we're praying that God would do a work in their heart. And I would encourage you to fast and pray. Last year I went one day, I was like, Colin, I'm coming for the whole weekend. Jeremy, preach. I want to be with the students. And it's an opportunity for me to model to you what I've encouraged you to do, to care and to spend and do whatever you can with your gifts to care about the next generation and children's and students. And so I'm just excited about that. But, but, but Colin's like, we're going to pray and fast in preparation for that. Um, Jeremy, first vision meeting for the White Lake Church plant. More this week, more in the coming weeks. Pray and fast. Find a day or a meal each week and you're like, I'm going after this before the Lord. Because there's resistance anytime we try to take ground. Amen? (laughs) I, I I want us to unify with the body of Christ during acute times of crisis. We don't go alone. We don't go alone. We rally with other believers in different seasons. And this should be happening with more consistency and more intensity in certain seasons. When we rally together, the the church finds unity in this truth. It was expressed in this 
in verse 12, before it says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, it says this, it says, we are powerless. What if the church of Jesus Christ, as opposed to trying to be aggressive and take grounds from all these enemies that are coming against us and walk around red-faced looking like we're out of control and just angry, and not just that, but we also don't want to be like kind of posturing ourselves. We're like, oh man, we have, we, have, we have nothing, no support. We're just completely a loss and we need to give up ground to the truth that God's word teaches. What if we just stayed in a place where we're just like, God, we are powerless. We are powerless. But our eyes, we don't even know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. How about more rallying together with other believers to seek the Lord? How about more people in our church fasting for one another when we hear of a need or a crisis? I've given you plenty of, to do this week. You can experiment with and try and move into fasting if you haven't done it in your life. Just take a meal and pray for one of the things that I've already shared this morning. What, what if you use the influence you have to call people to fast and pray like King Jehoshaphat? You might be like, well, I don't have any influence. I, you've got some people in your life, maybe in your own family, maybe the group of friends you have around you, even just one other person. It's okay, let's fast and pray together for this. Let's rally around this. And if you have greater influence, use it. If you have influence in, 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 in student ministries, if you have influence on a ministry team or in a community group, any person could speak up and go, hey, we need to fast and pray for this. We can live believing that, that when we face crisis, we rally with other believers to seek the Lord. And then this last point, remain in a posture of dependence. Remain in a posture of dependence. First, in verse 15, if you notice, if you notice there, look there. This guy, amidst the community gathering together, this guy stands up to prophesy and he says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. That's, that guy knows he heard from the Lord, okay? Because he was like, hey, hey, King Jehoshaphat, you're going to need to listen to this. I don't think he said it with that tone, but that just sounded fun. Um, and, he, and he says this, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. And then flip over to verse 17. Then he says this, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. In a, in a, um, in a crisis, what too often we do is we, we sort of, our first few steps tend to be direct but we fail to set our face on, on seeking the Lord. And so what happens is we, we get going, we're on a good trajectory, and then we're like, okay, now's, now's the time when I act. Like I, I spent about five minutes praying about my crisis. I'm really serious about this. I fasted through my appetizer, and, and now I'm ready to do something. Now I'm ready to act. And, and this happens all the time. It happens in my heart too at times. And and, and what God's calling us to is to remain in a posture of dependence. You, do, you don't leave the posture of dependence. You're not like, well, I've remained long enough. Now I'm going to go do it in my power. And God's going to bless it because I asked him to bless it. 
and I got enough faith, so God's going to deliver. I guarantee it. That's foolish. There's a, there's a legacy of encouragement to stand firm to watch God work. In Exodus 14, if you remember that, uh, the, God's people are on the edge of the Red Sea. Uh, God's people could literally look back and see the Egyptians marching to, to capture them and take them back into captivity. And Moses declared at the edge of that sea before the miracle that would, that would split the seas, he said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. He said that completely by faith. He had no clue how God was going to deliver. But he trusted God to deliver. The legacy continues into the New Testament. Galatians 5.1 says, stand firm in the freedom Christ has offered. That's what we celebrated and remembered as we took communion. 1 Peter 5, stand firm in the grace of God. Ephesians 6, stand firm in the armor of God. Church, I don't have a place where it's like, man, now you've got everything you need. Walk forward in a posture of independence. It's, it's always remain in a posture of dependence. Why would, we, why would we move to any other posture and put the pressure back on us? The posture of dependence is the safest place in the universe now and into the future. In any crisis, remain here. Listen, some battles can be won in a moment. God, through the power of His Spirit, can heal, He can redeem, He can rescue, He can bring to salvation in Christ, He can bring to repentance, He can bring freedom, He can do all of that in a moment. Sometimes though, the reality and the timing of God means that it might be a day or a week or a month or years. Sometimes it extends for a lifetime. But listen, our perspective is not just this life, it's eternal. And here's the reality, the testimony of, of eternity and eternal life is that God will win every battle. Amen? The victory may not be what you planned, and the victory may not come in the time frame in which you wanted it to happen. But the Bible is calling us again and again to remain, to remain, to remain, to stand firm and hold your position. More of this. Even as you go out to confront the crisis, remain in a posture of dependence. We don't leave this place. You know what? This is why some people say that the most dangerous place that you can be is a place where through going directly to God that now you've experienced a season of like victory or, or peace or success. And you know why it's a dangerous place? Because at that place, we're liable and, and have a, there's a temptation or a tendency to forget to remain in a posture of dependence. And you get to this place of victory and maybe there's peace all around. You're just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to kick my heels up. And then the wave hits. And you're not standing firm and you're not holding your position and you go under again. And you're tossed to and fro. It's easy to get content and start to forget your need for God. So understand that even something like, like communion that we celebrated earlier is not just for the person who's broken. It's also for the person who's walking in victory to remember that I need to remain in a posture of dependence. And so that's where I want to conclude today representing this not just by looking back at a historical account, but by bringing this reality right to our church today.
It's needed right now in our church. I hear about people walking through crisis all the time. And so I want to do something as we conclude today, and I want to encourage us to respond. And so uh, maybe if you're taking notes, you can just kind of close your Bible and just uh, turn your attention fully up here. And I first want to speak to the people in our church who might be walking through an acute crisis because of a threat. Maybe you're in a place and you have a medical diagnosis similar or in some ways causing fear, like Scott Brandenburg. If that's you this morning, um, or you're facing a, a, an acute crisis in another way and it's a threat against you, I just want to encourage you in the midst of the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God represented in this church, I just want to encourage you to stand right where you're at. Maybe it's a, a threat in another way because of um, some other reality that you're walking through, maybe a financial crisis or maybe just a, a crisis wrestling through some level of sin, if that's you, amen. And, and, and just have the courage just to stand right now and just say, the Lord, this, this is where I'm at right now and this is what I'm experiencing and, and uh, amen. Like, I, I, I love the boldness. King Jehoshaphat wasn't afraid to, to, to be afraid and, uh, and just to stand and go, that, that's who I am right now and that's where I'm at. If you're around them, if you know the person that's standing, I just encourage you to begin praying for them right now, even as, I'm, as we're concluding this message. And, and I believe more are going to stand in the next few moments. Or maybe it's a crisis of opportunity. If you're, if you're a student or a student leader going on the retreat next week, I just encourage you to stand. Stand right where you're at. And, and there's an opportunity coming. If, if, you've, if you've made the decision or or even inquiring about being a part of the White Lake Church plan, I'd encourage you just to stand to your feet right now and be like, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. And, and there's parts of that that make me afraid. And I don't know what the future holds in that. And, and we agree with you. We're there. And so, so if someone next to you or around you is standing, I first want us to, just to speak to anyone standing like it's okay to be afraid. I got a number of things, even some of the things I've talked about that, that create fear in me. But when we rally together as other believers, we're like, man, how do, we, how do we seek the Lord? How do we run directly to seek the Lord? And if you're around some of these people standing, I just want to encourage you to, to either put your hand on their shoulder and just begin to pray over them, and I'm going to lead us in prayer, or just reach your hand out towards them as a representation of this is what we do as the body of Christ. This is what we do. This is, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 20 coming alive right in our midst. Praying so that the realm of whoever you're around this morning would be quiet for God has given him or her rest all around. So just lay your hands on somebody, reach your hand out to pray for them and let me close our time together. Father, this is the church of Jesus Christ. I thank you for it. I thank you for the fact that you are over it and in it and through it. That your desire is the beauty of a moment like this would be represented to the world, testified boldly of the fact that in the midst of a world that is going haywire and in the midst sometimes, God, of the church that's abandoning the ways of your truth and word, and the purity of worshiping Jesus Christ alone. God, we are standing here today underneath your sovereign care and providence.
but there's some crisis in the room. And we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do, God. So many situations and circumstances. Even in the steps we're making by faith, God, sometimes we wrestle and wonder, is this the best, most effective path? But God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we're trusting that you would reveal it over time. We're trusting that you would meet us in the midst of these difficulties and struggles. Father, for some, a crisis because of a threat. I ask, God, that you would protect and you would heal and you would provide great ministry that in so many ways, in ways I can't even understand, but I trust your spirit in this moment, that people would have the confidence in this room that the battle is not theirs, the battle is the Lord's. And even the moves that they make that might produce fruit, that they wouldn't be like, look what I've done, but they'd be like, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, you have won the battle. Into the crisis of opportunity, God, I pray for revival this weekend for our students. I pray that scales would fall off of eyes. I pray that sin would be repented of. I pray that unity would be felt and experienced like never before. I pray that grief would be met with joy. I pray that emptiness would be filled through the power of your spirit. For the White Lake Church plant, God, I pray for Pastor Jeremy and the people that you're rallying around that, God, to be a light in that area for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to move the presence of the church right into an area, God, that needs a church that's going to herald your word. And God, I just confess that there's places in my life where I feel fear. And I'm thankful, God, for having a church family that will rally together and has rallied together around me so well. And I thank you, God, for the fact that so often, God, as we walk in this way, the realm of our lives are quiet for God is the one who gives rest all around. God, do it. Manifest it through the power of your spirit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,